0: All right, grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 20. We're on the topic of envy this weekend, and I was, I was, first of all, I didn't really want to research envy because I had a hunch that I was going to come across something that I didn't want to come across. As I looked at the list of the seven deadly sins, I thought that perhaps envy was the one of them that I didn't really struggle with a whole lot. And I had a hunch that if I studied it, I would come to realize that I do. And that is exactly the case. Uh, I was looking for some kind of creative, funny, envy story to start our time together. Apparently, envy is not very funny because I couldn't find one. But I did come across an unbelievable piece of information that I could not believe when I came across it. This surprising revelation was made in the audio commentary included with the episode Plankton on the DVD box set of the show's first season. Here's the revelation. Each of the main characters in SpongeBob SquarePants were inspired by one of the seven deadly sins. Mr. Krabs Greed, Plankton Envy, Patrick Sloth, Sandy Pride, Squidward Wrath, Gary Gluttony, Spongebob Lust. I don't know what we're supposed to do with that information, but now with that bit of trivia in our back pockets, we will jump into the topic of envy. Are you ready, kids? Some of you are tracking with me. the rest of you don't watch Spongebob, it's okay. Uh, envy is a little bit slippery and a little bit tricky to really get handles on because we we often use the word envy and jealousy interchangeably. And while they are alike, they are not the same thing. And so I want to start our time together by giving us some broad handles on what envy is and then we'll jump into our text for the weekend. So um, here's what we need to really start with and it's the reality that Envy and jealousy are not the same thing. Envy is the dark side of jealousy. Jealousy can be bad, but it doesn't have to be bad. Envy is always bad. Envy is the dark side of jealousy. I thought maybe a helpful way for us to look at this would be to contrast envy and jealousy so we can start to see the small differences that exist. So uh, here's where we'll start. The jealous have something that they don't want to lose. The envious don't have something that they want. Okay, so for example, uh, I love my wife very much. I'm jealous for her. I don't want to lose her. And so if I see another man that has an eye for my wife and he's trying to take her from me, jealousy kicks in. I don't want to lose my wife because I love her. I have great affection for her. That's jealousy. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. It can be a bad thing, but it doesn't have to be. Envy doesn't have something that it wants. So someone could be looking at my wife, and they want my wife, and they can't have my wife, and so they become envious, which gets us to the next contrast here. Jealousy says, I want that. Envy says, I don't want you to have that. Okay, so let's imagine this. I'm in college where I met my my now wife, and I start dating her. I want her to be my wife. I want a relationship with this woman. Okay, so I am jealous for her. And there is another guy who also wants to have a relationship with my wife, but he's realizing that I'm winning. I'm the one in the dating relationship with her. She is returning my affection. Okay, so this guy is looking at my relationship with Deanne, and let's just say hypothetically at a certain point, Deanne breaks up with me. And even though this guy knows that he can never have a relationship with her because she doesn't like him, he actually gains pleasure by her breaking up with me because even though he can't have her, he finds pleasure in the fact that I can't have her either. Envy. The last contrast is this. Jealousy celebrates gain. Envy celebrates another's loss. Jealousy celebrates personal gain. Envy celebrates another person's loss because the jealous are those who have something they love that they might lose. The envious, by contrast, are the have-nots. They don't have the good their rival does, and they don't have self-love. Thus, in their minds, they have nothing to lose and everything to gain from another person's loss. Uh, Interestingly enough, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, where envy starts popping up, uh, it often pops up as an idiom, figurative language. It's the evil eye. The evil eye. Uh, Envy is the comparison game. Therefore, it doesn't rejoice with others. In fact, it can't rejoice at all because it's always begrudging what other people have. So I want to do an experiment here about the evil eye. So right now, what I'd like you to do is look at somebody next to you, and I want you to squint your eyes. I want you to give them the nastiest, most destructive, hateful look you can conjure in your eyes. I'm giving you permission right now, all right? I I honestly want you to physically feel it, okay? Now, while holding the evil eye, keep looking at the person. All four campuses. While you're holding the evil eye, I want you at the same time to try to smile at them genuinely. (laughs) It doesn't work, does it? You know why that doesn't work? Envy can't smile. Envy cannot smile. In fact, theologians, people that take a look at this list of the seven deadly sins, uh, the vast majority of them will point out that envy is the one sin on this list That is absolutely no fun at all. All of the other sins provide some kind of fun, some kind of temporary pleasure. Envy is the only one on the list that just can't smile. And so we certainly don't want that to be a part of our life. Uh, as we continue on, uh, this starts to answer the question that I had for a long time, and it is, how could God be jealous? Jealous always, to me, seemed like a really bad thing. But when I saw the contrast between jealousy and envy, it started to make total sense to me. Like when we sing the worship song, he is jealous for me. God has strong affection for me. He doesn't want to lose me to anything. He doesn't want to lose me to the destructive nature of sin. He doesn't want to lose me to some false god or some kind kind of idol or other priority in my life. God is jealous for me. He has strong affection for me and for you. That makes total sense. Now, as we've been going through this series, our hope has been, the design of this has been, not to necessarily just keep pointing out your sins so you feel really guilty and ashamed. The point of this whole series has been for us to slow down enough that we could take a thoughtful and honest look at what really is going on on the inside of us. And one of the books we have used to prepare for this series and one of the books we have suggested that maybe you could grab and read is a book called Glittering Vices. It walks through each of the seven deadly sins in a very practical way. And so uh, that is available at the resource bookstore at all of the campuses. We want to take an honest look at what's going on on the inside because if we'll take an honest look at what's going on the inside, then it gives us a greater appreciation for Jesus for why we needed a savior, for how amazing God's goodness is, his patience, his forgiveness, what, what, why we so desperately need to be empowered by the spirit of God to live victorious lives. And so our hope has been that as we make a big deal honestly about sin, that it ends up making a much bigger deal about Jesus. And so we're just trying to be really honest about our lives and have some honest conversations. So now, with that being said, we're going to move on to this weekend's text, Matthew chapter 20. We'll be looking at a parable. Parables can be a bit cryptic, a little bit difficult to deal with. And so let me give you three quick tips right here on how to really understand the, the main thrust of a parable. Um, look for three things. One is, look for who Jesus is talking to. Look for the audience. Look for the audience. The second thing is look for the circumstance around their conversation, what is going on. And the third thing is just look for the twist in the parable. Most of the parables have an unexpected twist to them, and in that twist, you find the meaning of the parable. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 20, but to demonstrate this for you, let me back up a few verses. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples, those that have chosen to follow him. And Peter says this. Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Okay, so the disciples are thinking okay, one day Jesus is going to set up his throne. They think it was going to be sooner than later. They weren't thinking eternal stuff, new heavens, new earth down the road. They were thinking in a few months, perhaps Jesus will be sitting on the throne. And they want to know, we've been following you. What's our reward going to be? And Jesus says to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or fields, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. And then a cryptic statement. But... Many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. What in the world does that mean? And so then Jesus goes on to tell a parable to explain that statement. Here's the parable. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. For working knowledge, a denarius is the normal fair wage for a day's work in those times. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. And he went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. And again at about five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around and he asked them, Why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. And he said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So, when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. Let me pause here for a second and ask for you to use your imagination here. If you were one of the workers that started work early in the morning, you have found yourself at the end of the line, which probably already would have been a bit confusing to you. Why are the people that worked the least getting paid first? But also, something else is going on. As you're looking forward in the line, you start to notice that people that only worked a few hours are getting paid a denarius, a full day's wage, the same thing that you agreed to work for. And so if you're anything like me, as you're waiting in line, you're starting to think, I'm going to get paid a lot of money here. Because if they're getting a denarius and I worked more than them, certainly I'm going to get paid more than them. And so you start to get excited and you start to expect more because, well, comparatively, you deserve more, right? Here is the twist in the parable as it goes on. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble, no fooling. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? And so the last will be first. And the first will be last. The twist in the parable. Why are the last first in line? And why are they all getting paid the same amount of money? So let's take a look at this. And we're going to dig into this by looking at the three rhetorical questions that are asked at the end of the parable. All right. So here is, here is the first question. To the grumblers, didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Answer, yes, I did. And so what is, what is the point being made here? I'm being good. You agreed to a fair day's wage. I agreed to pay you a fair day's wage. I'm paying you exactly what we agreed on. I'm being good to you. What is your problem? Now, it could not always be taken for granted that landowners in those days would pay a fair wage. In fact, in an honor-shame society like they lived in, um, Being publicly honored was a big deal. And so there was uh, something, a fancy word that we don't use often, called benefaction, which simply means that people would pay for things for the public good. And in return, there would be some kind of inscription, some kind of monument set up, kind of like today when rich people provide libraries for universities and it becomes their library, right? Same thing going on in that culture and, um, you know, in 1929, they found an example of this. They, they dug it up and found it in the city of Corinth. In Romans and in Acts, uh, we find a reference to a man named Erastus. And Erastus apparently was a public works official or a city treasurer. And Erastus, uh, as a public benefactor, paid to pave an entire road in Corinth. This stone that they found is actually inscripted, recognizing that Erastus was, in fact, the one that paved the road. This would have been a big deal in those days, for you to receive public recognition, public honor for being a public do-gooder. Now, here is what is a bit mischievous. Sometimes landowners um, would hire day laborers, which was common practice in those days, day labor. And what they would do is they would not pay the day laborers a fair wage. They would kind of unfairly pay them, save all of that money, contribute the money to some kind of public deed, and receive honor for it. And so you couldn't take for granted that, in fact, a landowner would pay the day laborers a fair wage. But in this case, landowner's saying, look, I'm being good to you. I hired you. We agreed on a day's wage. You worked for a day's wage. Now, here is where envy kicks in. If the people that worked all day long are watching this play out, they probably would have been okay receiving a denarius for the day that they agreed on if the people in front of them were paid less than them, right? Which is crazy if you think about it because it doesn't change their reality or their pay at all. So they actually would feel better about themselves, they would feel better about their pay, they would feel better about their lot in life by somebody else getting less. It's the comparison game. But the comparison game doesn't change our reality. All it does is it makes our hearts bad and it causes us to grumble against God and other people. And if I get a little bit philosophical right here, right now, uh, this is where we start to slowly roll into the question of theodicy. Theodicy is our contemplation of evil. And the biggest question of humanity is, if there is a God who is both good and all-powerful, how do you explain the existence of evil, all of the bad things in our world? And I don't think really that when we start asking those questions, it's very rare that somebody just asks that question in the broad sense because they're curious. I don't think most people are asking, why evil? I think most people are asking, why me? Why is, why is this bad thing a part of my life? Why do other people have it better than me? And then we start shaking our fist at God and blaming God as if God owes us something. Envy, the comparison game, and it makes our hearts bad. You know, a a few weeks ago, we're in August now, so this is a few months ago, uh, I was up at summer camp with our students. And whenever I go to summer camp, my wife takes the kids to Tennessee and they spend a few weeks down there with grandparents. And my wife started calling me, telling me that our two year old daughter um, was waking up in the morning and was having a hard time walking, which was really odd. Up to that point, she was very, very healthy. And so I said, well, when, you get, when, you, when we get back home, let's take her to the doctor. Well, it progressed quickly to the point that my two year old daughter could not walk. We would have to get her out of the crib in the morning, um, out of her bed. Uh, now, mind you, a girl that was running, jumping, playing, all of a sudden couldn't use her legs. And so we would carry her, put her at the breakfast table, sit her down to play with toys. Um, found out that she was, she was diagnosed with juvenile arthritis, which I didn't even know existed. Um, and uh, so brought her to the elders, had the elders pray with her one weekend, took her to the doctors, um, and then a few weeks ago, we were celebrating communion together here at Christ Community, and as you know, on communion weekends, the elders are here to pray, and so I had dropped our two-year-old off in Kids World, and that was a difficult moment for me because she's in the two-and-a-half-year-old room, And I had to ask the teachers, like, say to the teachers, she can't walk. Is it okay if I put her in here? Which was a difficult question as a dad to ask. And then um, I left a little bit early for worship at the end to go get her, to bring her back into worship so that the elders could pray for her. And the whole time when I go to get her, I'm carrying my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, thinking to myself, I cannot believe right now that I'm carrying my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter to the elders for them to pray for her, because she can't walk. And I hadn't even said it out of my mouth yet, really, at that point. Um, And so, uh, this poor elder, I felt so bad, because that's a a pressure-filled moment right there, right? Uh, I walked up to the the elder couple with my wife standing there, and I was just holding Katie in my hands, and I said, this is my daughter, Katie. She's two and a half. She can't walk. And I just started crying, you know. And so, the elders prayed, and Thank God for steroid shots, they have her up and walking right now, but she still has the same thing going on in her body, so when that shot wears off, they will either have to inject her again so that she can walk, or God's going to need to heal her. One of those two things needs to happen. Now, I share all of that with you, to say this morning, with as much honesty as I can muster up, I don't think God owes me anything. And some of you need to hear this. For those of you that think God has somehow shortchanged you, that somehow he owes you something, that you deserve something because other people have it and you don't, what I want to stand before you and say this morning is that God is good, and God doesn't owe us anything. All of his promises are yes and amen. In 2 Corinthians, it says it quite clearly that God has made certain promises to us. No matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, and through So through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. If God has promised it, if he has said it to be true, it is true. You can take God's word to the bank every day of the week. And so we need to know what God has promised to us and build our lives on that firm foundation. But listen to me. God does not owe us anything beyond what he has said he will give to us. And... One of the promises of Scripture, one of the provisions of the cross, is physical healing. What is not really told to us is when that healing will come. I have seen people physically healed. I have laid my hands on people and seen them healed in front of my eyes. I have prayed for people, and they go back to the doctor, and the doctors scratch their head and say, the last, this test is different than the test we just ran a few weeks ago. We can't explain it. It happens a lot. Physical healing comes in the here and now because we get a foretaste of the kingdom that is to come. So it happens now. So I would not be surprised if I took my daughter to the doctor, they ran blood work again, and they said it's gone. It would not surprise me in the least. It also would not surprise me, nor would I think God owes me anything if her final healing doesn't come until she sees Jesus face to face. And I want to tell you that whichever way that plays out, God is good, and he doesn't owe me anything and to whatever extent that helps some of you with the grumbling and the begrudging that's going on in your heart, then I hope it does. I hope it brings a little bit of courage and a little bit of healing for you. The next rhetorical question here is this. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Once again, the answer is, of course you do. You can do whatever you want with your money. And what we, what we stumble upon here is the fact that the landowner is gracious, The pay ranges everywhere from good and fair to increasingly gracious. So at no point in this story is the landowner being bad or unfair. In fact, this landowner is being very, very gracious. But the weird part is, of course, the first to work were paid last, and the last to work were paid first. They were all paid the same, Now, this this is where you got to lock in. They were all paid the same, but the level of grace and generosity was different depending on how long they worked. If inequals are treated equally, then positions and ranking mean nothing. Let me say that one again because in our American culture, this one is an odd statement. If inequals are treated equally, then positions and ranking mean nothing. I don't deserve anything more from God because I'm a pastor. For those of you that have been following Jesus for 50 years, you don't deserve anything more from God than someone that just crawled in here this morning hoping that Jesus is real because their life is so wrecked that they don't even know what to do. None of us deserves anything more from God than another. And if I'm going to write, I'm going to summon my best old school preacher voice. You ready? This is with everything inside of me. A little pulpit banging too. You ready? Brothers and sisters, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We just don't like it. We like the fact that God is good and gracious. We just want him to be good and gracious to us. don't get so happy when he's good and gracious to others, because somehow we think we deserve something. Now the last question. This is the embarrassing question. The last rhetorical question is, are you envious because I am generous? Embarrassingly? Yeah. Yes, I am. And I need to ask the question here, why? Why am I envious when God is good to other people, when I see other people succeeding, when I see blessings in their lives? What is it in me that can't celebrate with them sometimes? And you know, most of the time when envy kicks in, it's because it's the comparison game, I don't compare myself with people like Bill Gates. I don't ever imagine that I'm going to have as much money as Bill Gates. so I have no problem envying Bill Gates. I have problem envying people that are kind of in the same stratosphere that I'm in. So I have problems envying other student ministries, pastors' ministries, and other pastors' salaries, and other pastors' situations, and other families. Right? It would be very easy for me to look at other families who all of their kids are healthy and start getting envious. Why them, not me? You know. And so my comparison game is always with people that are kind of in my stratosphere. It might be relatives, or friends, or peers. Now imagine this. What if your self-worth and your value and your contentment was not based on comparison at all? That'd be a pretty good thing. But when when we're valuing our contentment and our lot in life based on the comparison game, then the proverbial build ourselves up to knock others down thing kicks in, right? I can actually, in my own warped mind, win by knocking other people down because if they're down, I'm up comparatively speaking. Now, I'm not really up. I'm just up in comparison to them if I can push them down. This is how envy works. Envy can't smile. I want to read you a list, some categories of how envy manifests itself in our lives. And and just listen and see if you can find yourself in any one of these categories. Feeling offended or slighted by the talents, successes, or good fortunes of others. Selfish or unnecessary rivalry or competition with others. Pleasure at others' difficulties or distress. Belittling others, false accusations or slander. Intentionally causing others to act and think negatively of another. Oh gosh, have you been in a high school lately? (laughs) Teasing or bullying. Ridicule of people, institutions or ideals. Prejudice against those we consider inferior. Those who consider us inferior or those who threaten our security or position. The cure to envy is recognizing what this parable is trying to point out. God is good and God is gracious and God is generous and the first will be last and the last will be first. So whatever mental pecking order you have set up in your mind is completely undone by God's goodness and his grace and his generosity. God is not playing by your rules or your standards, and we should all be grateful for that. Let let me ask you this one question to drive this point home. Do you really want what you deserve? Or would you prefer forgiveness, grace, goodness, and generosity? And so let me give you three quick practical things that you can do to undercut envy's power in your life. Uh, Number one is this. Just stop comparing. (laughs) At some point, you got to stop comparing. Um, I already asked this question. What would it be like to have a self-worth whose value, if your self-value and your lot in life, were unconditional and non-comparative? Just you and God. I'll say it this way. When you compare what you know about you to what you don't know about me, you lose every time. When you compare what you know about yourself to what you don't know about others, you lose every time, right? So you can look at somebody else's family and their possessions, and you can ask, why them? Why are they so fortunate and not me? But you don't know all the details about their life. You don't know what their family relationships are like. You don't know if they own that status symbol they're driving. Chances are they're paying 500 bucks a month on that thing. Why did I say that out loud? When you compare what you know about yourself to what you don't know about other people, you lose every time. We've got to stop the comparison game. Envy eats us alive. Now, I want to give you two things that might help you do this. Uh, The first of which is at all four campuses on your way out, you'll find them on tables in the lobby. They're bookmarks. Um, We got one for each of you. Uh, This is a list of scriptures called Who I Am in Christ. If you have recognized Jesus for who he is, if you have repented of your sin, asked Jesus to forgive you, then these things are true of you, regardless of what's going on in other people's lives. These things are true of you, just you and God. And so... Put this on your nightstand, put it up on your fridge, put it on your bathroom mirror. Do something so that you are constantly looking at what is true of you and who you are in Christ. And perhaps maybe a little bit, this will undercut the comparison game. Uh, The other one I have for you is actually a web link. Uh, There are three things that, as an adult, I don't understand why they went away. uh, Because when we were kids, we got them regularly, and now as adults, we don't. And I think we should bring them back. One is snack time one is nap time, and the third is story time. I think all of these are really good things. If you go on Google and you Google, you are special. The second hit you will get is a YouTube video. It is the, it is the reading and the actual illustrations from the book by Max Lucado, You Are Special. It's a children's book. I think every single one of us would benefit from sometime this week taking eight minutes and letting YouTube read you that book. Um, and maybe that will help you a little bit to appreciate more about who you are in Christ and how much God loves you and how much the comparison game just doesn't really help. All right, so there's one. Just stop the comparison game. Uh, the, second, the second tip I have for you is to live in the Spirit which is a broad statement, it actually applies to all seven of the seven deadly sins, but I want to point out one thing, and that is every place in the New Testament, or just about every place in the New Testament where envy appears in the lists of sins, it is in direct contrast to what lives look like when they're lived in the Spirit. So let me give you two examples here. Gentleness and self control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. And then Titus chapter 3. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life." Uh, We made a book recommendation earlier in the series. We want to make it again, Forgotten God by Francis Chan. If you want to dig into and understand more completely how to have a relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit and what it means to live by the Spirit, keep in step in the Spirit, be empowered by the Spirit, all of these things that the New Testament coaches us towards, that would be a fantastic book. We worship a triune God, a Trinity, Father, Son, and and Holy Spirit. And I think that book would be a fantastic help for a lot of you. And here is my last tip, and this one is mega practical. Do little things for those with little status without drawing any attention to it. Do things privately without any fanfare. Little things. You don't have to be extravagant things. Just do little things for other people that, that can't repay you or won't repay you And that will start undercutting envy's power in your life.